There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon. Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, I am really delighted to have our guest. He is the prolific author of 21 novels including Time to Hunt, Black Light, Point of Impact, and the New York Times bestsellers, Havana, Pale Horse Coming, and Hot Springs. He created memorable characters, Bob Lee Swagger, Earl Swagger, Ray Cruz. He's the retired chief film critic for the Washington Post, where he won the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for distinguished criticism. He's also published two collections of film criticism and a nonfiction work, American Gunfight. His latest book, Targeted, the 12th in the Bob Lee Swagger series, is so relevant to right now that I couldn't believe it as I was reading it. I have given it five stars at Amazon, I've tweeted about it, and I'm thrilled to have this chance to do this podcast. And so I'm very pleased to welcome back my guest, the Pulitzer Prize-winning critic, essayist, best-selling novelist, I hope I might say friend, Stephen Hunter. It's great to be here, Newt, and I'm so pleased and happy at your enthusiasm for this book. Did you have a notion when you started to work on Targeted how relevant it would be to right now? Actually, not at all, because this is an old idea that I've had for years and years, and I kept trying to find a way to do it that made sense. And one of the things that a professional novelist does is he has to understand the difference between 
the one or two good ideas he gets and the three or four hundred bad ideas he gets. And I just couldn't get it out of the bad idea range. I couldn't quite figure out how to make it work or what milieu. And I tried all kinds of goofy things. It just got really ridiculous. And then finally, I was inspired by a Maryland Department of Prisons bus in downtown Baltimore. And I saw that vehicle, which looked like death in the lurking in the high grass. It was olive drab with bars on it. And it looked like a siege machine from the medieval times. That just sort of allowed me to organize the book in a way that ultimately permitted me to write it. And I actually wrote it a fairly long time ago. I started it during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. So it sort of tracks political theater and folly through several generations of scandals. You know, in other words, every time I'd run out of gas, they'd do something even crazier. And that would fill me with energy again. So I got through Kavanaugh and I was helped immeasurably as a writer by the two impeachments of Trump and Joe Biden comes along and man, it's just gravy. You know, it's just a golden time for satire and contempt and snark. I'm really intrigued with the way you described it, because this is a several-year project coming to maturation. Yeah, that's exactly true. It's also a several-publisher project coming to maturation. I can't say I was victimized by the New York left, the generally liberal culture of publishing. I parted with one publisher on good terms, and it had more to do with scheduling, because I inserted my last book, which is called Basil's War, into a series of books that I was publishing, and it threw off the timing. And my first publisher couldn't handle that situation. And that's when it better to move on to a different publisher and sort of start over with a blank slate. And my brilliant agent got it done in a matter of days, and it postponed the book for about six months in terms of reaching the public. But that's okay. As you say, it arrives now exactly, I think, the precise moment in American culture, American political history, where it may or may not have some impact. At least, as you say, it is relevant. As I watch the insanity of the House Select Committee on January 6th, which is trying to imitate Joe McCarthy, but in an even more aggressive way, despite two U.S. Supreme Court decisions against McCarthy that said Congress can't do these things. I just found this to be remarkable. And of course, as you know, the decay of the news media has been tragic. So you manage in one book to capture both the absurdly hypocritical and dangerous behavior of a congressional committee and the egocentric and manipulative behavior of the news media all in one volume built around one of the great characters in American fiction, Bob Lee Swagger. And I admire the fact that you have aged Swagger all the way through and that it is true to a human being from the very young days when you had him as a sniper in Vietnam up through now an older time, and yet you make it all believable. It's remarkable. But I want to take a little bit of a detour because our great research team came across a fact I didn't know about at all, that you are a member of the old guard. 
I was, yes. I spent 18 months in the old guard. I was in a burial company, and for about four or five months, I had the melancholy duty of putting young men into the earth way, way, way before their time. And so the military funeral was more or less engraved in my cerebellum, and there are funerals in most of my books. They figured out that I had this journalism connection, and they switched me to the public information office, which I can't defend it as having anything to do with preserving democracy. (laughs) It was straight public relations, and it was sucking up to the media and writing Insanely unit-flattering stories for the newspaper of the Military District of Washington. I'm actually kind of ashamed of it. And yet, on the other hand, the Army did with me what it wanted and based on its best judgment of what I could do for it. So I guess in the long run, I really shouldn't regret those days I spent in that office writing dreary propaganda about the greatness of the old guard. You know, people were dying in Vietnam, and I was writing about parades at Fort McNair. There was an incongruity to it that left me extremely uneasy. And yet, when I look back on it, I have to admit, I got a lot more out of the Army than it got out of me. So just for a second for our listeners, describe why it's called the old guard. It's actually the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment. Well, yes. Even the name is kind of interesting. When I was in it, the word regiment wasn't part of the title. It was the 3rd Infantry. And I was always asking people, what are we? Are we a regiment? Are we a battalion? Are we a task force? And no one, even in the Army, knew what we were. We were an infantry. And they decided, I guess, a few years ago that this had gotten kind of embarrassing. So now they made us a battalion as a part of a regiment. And I don't really think the regiment exists. I think all of this has to do with paper. And the only thing that really exists is the battalion. And the battalion, you know, is a self-contained little world. And it is called the Old Guard because of storied battles of the 3rd Infantry, both in the war against Mexico in 1848 and in the Civil War. And it is said that during the Civil War, when they marched in review past Lincoln, someone said to him, these are the men that saved the Union, Mr. President. And he said, oh, well, they're certainly the old guard. And that's where the name came from. Well, it is sort of relevant that it is the oldest regiment in the U.S. regular army. It was formed in 1784. So it's really quite a career. That heritage is still on view. One of the key elements of the Old Guard was the Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. They were basically professional flutists and drummers, and they would join the Army to do this because they really got off on fifing and drumming, and they were extraordinarily precise and they were great military theater. When you saw them, if you squinted, It was really like being back in 1789 because they were in their period costumes with their period wigs and the period instrumentality. And I had the privilege once of seeing them perform 
at Jamestown. And that was like a trip back in time. H.G. Wells took me back and put me in a colonial city in 1789. And it was really a remarkable and a vivid experience. And so the Old Guard is one place where the history still lives. One of the things that, again, I didn't know, and our great research team pulled this up, your mother was a children's book author? Yeah, my mother was a very ambitious writer. And it's so funny, when I was growing up in the 50s, my idea of a writer was a big guy in a safari hat with a white beard and a Holland and Holland 458 double rifle over his shoulder. And this little lady in her pink terry cloth bathrobe and her hair in curlers and one of a hundred cigarettes a day hanging out of her mouth, pounding away at a typewriter. That to me, at my age then, you know, one was a writer and the other was a crazy housewife. And yet when I ultimately became a writer, I realized that the crazy housewife was a lot closer to what a writer was than the guy walking around the bush felt with that big gun. I learned the lesson from her of work and consistency and dedication. I mean, she was a very, very hardworking woman. And she was an ardent champion feminist before feminism had even begun to light up Simone de Beauvier's eyeballs in Paris. She was a good role model. Although, obviously, I don't need hair curlers these days. <laughs> <laughs> now, in your own case, you start off in the copy room as a copy reader, and then you become a book review editor. What did you learn about the publishing industry from being a book review editor, and did it affect you at all later when you became a writer? It actually more or less did. What I learned was that 98% of the books published don't get reviewed or noticed. Most just go out like squirrels in the forest, you know, and the owl picks them off and they disappear forever and nobody knows, nobody cares. You know, that's just the fate of the normal book in America. I also understood the sanctity of genre rules. I understood that the fundamental rule is that it's their game. And unless you're a genius on the level of Shakespeare, you have to play by their rules. You have to understand what kind of books they're interested in publishing, and you have to produce those books in order to get any kind of a hearing at all. Fortunately, my sensibility was such that I was inclined to write those kind of books anyway. I'm only inadvertently autobiographical. I had no interest at all about turning the squalid night I lost my virginity into a 600-page, you know, buildings roman. And nobody cares about that then or now or ever. And I wanted from the start to write what would be called the commercial product. And I had to learn how it was done. It took a long while to sort of get it sorted out and figured out in my head. I had to learn how to be a professional writer. You can't learn how to be a genius, and I'm far from a genius, but I guess you can learn how to be a professional, and I believe I can fairly call myself 30 books into it, a professional.
the best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You became a film critic in 1982. What got you to move from books to movies? Well, I got tired of the book job. I got tired of being an editor. I was really not meant to be an editor. And in fact, the fulcrum on which my professional life in journalism changed was a lunch I had with an editor from New York when she came down to Baltimore. She recently died, but she was a remarkable woman. And we had a great time. We really got along. And three weeks later, I got a letter from her, and she said, oh, thank you so much for having lunch for me, and blah, 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 blah. And she said, now, I have to say one thing. I know many editors, 
and I know many writers, and you do not have an editor's personality. You have a writer's personality. So let me ask one more question. Do you have something you could show me? And because I was a writer pretending to be an editor, I did, in fact, have something to show her. And I won't go through the steps, but that was not publishable. But that led to the first book that was publishable, which was The Master Sniper. And she was the one, she was at Morrow at that time, who bought that book and started this whole mad ball rolling. That's amazing. Now, I have to tell you, from a movie standpoint, I just did a newsletter on Casablanca because it's the 80th birthday. Oh, it's a wonderful movie. I love that movie. It's extraordinary. How did it feel in 2003 when you got a Pulitzer Prize? Well, it had been a goal of mine. And like all my goals, it was unreasonable to expect because it had to do with, you know, I mean, the Pulitzers aren't what they seem like rewards for the best in journalism, but that's not exactly true. They're very political and they change meaning from prize to prize from year to year. And they involve horse trading. Sometimes they're given as career rewards. Sometimes they're given in one category for works that occurred in other categories. Sometimes the judges or the board will move a nominee from one category to another category in order to give it a prize. It's just, you know, it's the world. It's politics as usual. And that had worked against me in the number of years that I had been entered. I'd been a finalist twice before, and you usually don't win the big prize unless you've been a finalist. And then I seemed to fall out of favor with them. And it was a very strange time. If you're a finalist, you know it. So that last weekend before, you know you're one of three possibles. That last weekend before the announcement is excruciating. You can't sleep or eat or barely breathe or anything, and you wait for this phone call. And in my particular case, in that particular year, we didn't know that I was a finalist. And so it was completely unexpected. I mean, one of my patterns is very bizarre. I get what I want, but I get it after I no longer want it. And that was true of film criticism. That was true of the Washington Post. That was true of the novel writing. And that was true of the Pulitzer Prize. On all of those issues, I'd given up and said, okay, Steve, you've had a great life. You got most, but you didn't get what you really wanted. So just make peace with it and forget about it. And bingo, the next day I got it. So I had given up on the Pulitzer. I wasn't even thinking about it. And I was asked to come upstairs by Gene, now a columnist, but in those days, the editor of the style section. And despite our multitudinous political differences, a very, very decent man and very supportive of me. And so we went upstairs into this little room and in the little room were Don Graham, Ben Bradley, Gene. It was just the three of them. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, what have I done? If it takes three of them to fire me, I must have done something really awful. And I can't remember which of the three of them said, Steve, you won the Pulitzer Prize. And later they joked about how high I jumped. And the only thing I can say is that it was as if 
and I'm borrowing this metaphor from Richard Condon, it was if someone had punctured a hole in the floor of heaven and the steam of hot bliss had poured down into reality. I mean, it was just a moment of such total and explosive happiness as I had never known. But even at that, I will say, it could be compared to a shot of bourbon in the sense that you really feel great. You have this knock on the side of the head, the world gets blurry, everyone is your friend, everything is fabulous. But at the very, very same time, at a deeper level, you understand that it's ephemeral, that it will pass. Sick transit, Gloria Monday. And boy, is Gloria Monday fickle. She just will dump you. So I knew it was going to be great, and then it was not going to be great. And the euphoria lasted for a while, and then it sort of went away, and it just became a factor in my life. I thank you for bringing it up. It's mentioned on all my book jackets, and people say, Steve, you really didn't win a Pulitzer Prize for writing novels. You won it for writing movie reviews. Is it really fair to say Pulitzer Prize winner on the jacket of the books? And I say, you know, that's a good point. I'm going to write them a letter. Well, I'll write it tomorrow or the next day. I don't know when I'll write. I'll get around to writing it when I'm 97 and in the home. But see, the thing is, it's a very, very tough marketplace and you need something that makes you singular. And as humble and irrelevant as is, that does make me to some degree singular. And so I'm going to just keep my mouth shut and blame it on New York while secretly, as is done many a time, when something breaks to your advantage that's a little dicey, you pretend to have no knowledge of it. So I'm totally innocent as to why it ends up on the book covers. And as I say, I intend to deal with it one of these days. With or without the Pulitzer Prize on your book cover, you've had a heck of a run with Bob Lee Swagger. I have indeed. In the day he came and visited me for the first time, little did I know that my life was taking a radical turn, maybe for the better, but certainly for the more interesting. And as you say, I've had a heck of a run. It's been such good fun. I mean, it's taken me places. It's introduced me to people. It's God made me Newt Gingrich, for God's sake. So it's all to the good. It's just been a great ride. Did you think by the time you wrote volume 12 in his biography that you know him pretty well? Yeah, I do. But then I occasionally get people who say that aliens have kidnapped the real Stephen Hunter and the robot Steve is not as good as real Steve. And I just don't get that. I mean, it's still me. And maybe I'm revealing aspects of myself that I either advertently or inadvertently kept shielded. I mean, this book, and the same was true of the shopping center book, Soft Target, they reveal my fundamentally conservative nature, conservative politically, conservative culturally, conservative chronologically. And that's just as legitimate a part of me as the part that writes books 
that have no political content at all. And in fact, my next book is set in World War II, and it has, I don't think, except culturally in the sense that admires that generation and laments their passing, that would be a culturally conservative value. But other than that, it's by no means political. But, you know, it's interesting because your books on swagger generally are action books, and they're books of tension and of adversarial conflict. Now you have swagger getting a little bit older. He's recovering from a severe wound, and he gets subpoenaed by the House Judicial Committee Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism. I mean, I had no idea when I got it that this is where you were going. And it's just wild. I mean, you place him in an environment that is totally different than he expects it. I suspect that Bob Swagger would rather have been in the jungle in Vietnam than be in that room with the Congressional Committee. And your portrait of the Congressional Committee is so deliciously savage that anybody who has contempt for the U.S. Congress, which at current count is like 70% of the country, will find this book to be marvelously reassuring. You know, that congressional hearing has struck me as a American folly, not only in our times, but in all times. Believe me, I'm not a reformer who wants to see it abolished, but I also think it's imperative that it be criticized, that it be looked at, that it be established that it is primarily theatrical. You know more about this, of course, than I do. But from my point of view, it is primarily theatrical. Its agenda is never what that agenda is claimed to be. It is engineered to bring attention and popular success to certain members. Certain members have used it to launch gigantic political careers for years and years. And now, no difference than in the 40s and in the 20s, I'm sure these political hearing auto de fe's can be tracked back to 1789. You know, maybe they investigated the original old guard fife and drum corps for all I know. And they're always, in my mind, exhibitions of cynicism, self-admiration, narcissism, and fundamental unfairness. Because the way it's set up, of course... The Congress has all the advantages, and the people who have been subpoenaed are pretty much whipping boys. And I just thought dramatically that that would be fun to write, and that the dialogues could be fun to write, the give and takes. And I had also, as you certainly noticed, there is a portrait of two prominent politicians in there, exaggerated, satirical. I hope it's funny. Some people will be enraged, but to me it was so much fun to come up with those visions of certain real people. And one of my secret missions here was that I always wanted to, somehow the right has ceded a sense of humor to the left. That's not entirely true, but you know, most comedians, most comedies, most satires are by the left of the right. And I wanted to do my little bit to write that balance. I wanted to show people, even liberals, that conservatives can be pretty damn funny. 
You just have to read the Babylon Bee to understand that. You know, that was sort of one of the things I wanted to demonstrate. When I got to the post, I wanted to demonstrate to them that someone who knew about and was of guns could be a good guy, a good writer, a good sport, a good office mate. That was important to me to sort of be an ambassador showing that I could do what they do as well as they do it. And in this respect, I want to show them that conservatives can be as funny as they can be at our expense. So that was one motivation that prompted me to go in this particular direction. Having lived through it myself and spent 20 years in the House, the imbalance of power, which would bring an American hero and put them at a total disadvantage to several people who were, frankly, pretty despicable, and to a chairwoman who was deliciously crazy. I have to confess, because I'm so irritated by the current special committee on January 6th and the way they're abusing their power, and then the general behavior of one or two members over the last three or four years as they've gone after Trump with absolute dishonesty. I have to confess, as I was reading it, I just thought, Wow, this captures, makes slightly exaggerated, but candidly having been in the room, not nearly as exaggerated as people might think, the kind of pathologies and the kind of dishonesty and the kind of hypocrisy and the degree to which the innocent American citizen, even a Marine veteran who's a hero, can be run over by people who aren't even worthy of holding his gun or filling gas in his car. And I thought you really captured that, and then you paralleled it with a milder, but nonetheless clearly critical view of the news media who were covering the hearing. And you did it, I think, very cleverly. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, 
We've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I also was struck by the way in which you were weaving together three really different stories. You have the story of Swagger and the Congressional Committee. You have the story of a group of criminals from Chechnya. And then you have the flashbacks to the origin of Swagger in the Revolutionary War. And I want to take just a minute to ask you about that because the rhythm of that and the way you wrote that was totally different. Yeah. And see, that was the attraction. I knew that I was writing in kind of a, what might be called a post-hip sardonic tone of voice in the modern sections. I tried to write the 1780 sections in language opposite to the times, not going so far that it was impenetrable, but trying to capture the higher degree of formality, the higher reliance on Latin sort of forms and the more precise use of the language and the whole different rhythm, more magisterial and yet also slower and more cumbersome. And for some reason, maybe I am a born 18th century man. I find it easy to do that. Not only do I find it easy, but I enjoy playing those games and playing those two styles off against each other. Some people will get it, some people won't. It was reviewed in the New York Times this past weekend, and that lady did not get it. She was not cruel to the book or dismissive. Well, she was dismissive, but she wasn't arrogantly dismissive. That's probably the best review I could get in the time. But it was clear that she just didn't get it. You know, she just couldn't figure out why this was there. And to her, it seemed arbitrary and is very baffling to her. Plus, I had the impression that as soon as she filed the piece, 
she went and took a three-hour shower because she felt so dirtied by all the gun stuff. She couldn't believe anyone could write that much about guns. It just was from a different universe than any she'd ever touched or thought existed. I don't know. It's a very peculiar review. To your point, yes, indeed, the juxtapositions of style, that was part of the great fun of composing the thing. I mean, you pull it off. I have to say, I thought that the style of the 18th century section was exquisitely well done. But the question I've got is, how do you sit around? You have a very logical but complex story in which you both have a congressional hearing and you have a bunch of Chechnyan criminals and you weave them together to create a moment of action that's very decisive but that is coherent. And then, by the way, you decide, why don't I go back and introduce you to the origin of the Swagger family. Now, I mean, that's a very interesting decision in terms of thinking about the structure of the book. It was a very interesting decision. I have to say that in my camp, such as it is, it was not greeted with universal approval. There were several people who were a little baffled by it themselves. I had that swagger story in mind for 20 years, and I'd been looking for a way to drop it. I could thematically insert it in a way that made some kind of sense. And in fact, that was one of the appeals of it early on. Now, I had trouble in early drafts with finding, you talked about the rhythm, and that's so important. If the rhythm is wrong, it doesn't work. I had to make it sort of part of the larger rhythm of the book so that the two stories with their reveals, with their calls to action, with their rise to action, and the initiation of and a disposition of and final end of action, so that they played off of each other. And that was difficult. That was like a job of editing more than it was a job of writing. Well, they're basically the same things. It, it was understanding how to integrate the structures of the two stories in a way that expanded, amplified, made the book better, rather than made it worse and goofier and more incomprehensible. And as I say, the first time through, I didn't do it very well. And the second time through, I didn't do it very well. And for me, and this may be of interest to you and other people who will read the book. The last chapter I did was the battle scene on King's Mountain without giving too much away. And I realized I needed that scene because the figure who we see on King's Mountain, his shadow, his presence must be felt in every single scene set in 1780 after that. And if we don't see him in action and understand who he is, if he's just a name, then it lacks a center. So as I say, I researched that battle and I went back and I consulted many sources and I found a way to try and recreate it to, I would guess, as well as it's ever been recreated anywhere. You actually have... The 18th century story is a rational component with a clear link to the 21st century trial. That is exactly right. 
I like origin stories. You know, obviously the Swagger family is extraordinary, or one line of it is extraordinary. And I'm a great believer in the heredity of certain talents. This is why we see coaches' sons becoming great professional athletes and the sons of major league ball players becoming major league ball players, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I wanted to account for the presence of this gene, the swagger gift, where it came from. And I obviously found a source, a man that I've admired in other contexts for years and years, in many ways the original Green Beret, reputedly the best rifle shot of the 18th century. And it just made perfect sense to me. I've teased it for years. I've known this for years. I've played with it for years. I've promised it for years. And I'm so glad that I got a chance to deliver it at long last. Well, you realize, though, you've now opened up a whole new opportunity to write a series of 18th and 19th century swagger stories. I do realize that. I'm not sure if I'll do it. Maybe someone else can do it. Always the one swagger family book that I need to write, I hope to write, have some ideas in, would be a Western. You know, I love Westerns. I saw every Western ever made between the year 1930 and the year 2021 and 2022, including, and let me just tout, there's a Western out now that's very good called Old Henry with Tim Blake Nelson that I highly commend to any of you folks out there who love Westerns, who love, as we say, those who still worship the old gods. And I want to write a swagger. I got to get a swagger in the West some way, somehow. Of course, I probably have to learn how to ride a horse to do that. I don't know if I can do that at my age. My daughter is an equestrian, so maybe she can pitch in. That's right. She can teach you the horse parts. Yes, exactly. Now, what's the bridle again? That's the bridle. Okay, okay. (laughs) Steve, I really want to thank you. I really enjoyed reading Targeted. I encourage our listeners to buy a copy. But in addition, if you haven't read the Bob Lee Swagger novels, this is the 12th. I encourage you to buy all 12 and read them in order. They're amazing. It is a really remarkable contribution to American literature. I also want to let our listeners know we're going to have a link to all of your books, including Targeted, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Thank you very much, Newt. You've just been great. I do appreciate it. Thank you to my guest, Stephen Hunter. You can get a link to buy his new Bob Lee Swagger novel, Targeted, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.